Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God. And uh, today we're going to look at a number of different things. I, I, I was I had a whole subject matter all picked out, and, uh, and then somebody asked me a question about First Corinthians chapter six, and uh, so I just finished putting in notes about First Corinthians chapter five. So we also have chapter six, and so. It might be, you know, I can always tie all these things together because that's one of the beautiful things about the kingdom is it's all-encompassing of almost every aspect of your life. It's not just for Sunday and Sabbath mornings. And uh, and uh, I had a brief conversation at breakfast this morning about uh, identity politics. And, uh, of course, the idea that you're a Baptist or a Lutheran or... Methodist or Catholic or a Muslim or a Jew, uh, this is, that's all part of the same thing that we see in identity politics. It's about dividing the people according to some sort of man-imposed identity. And, uh, we don't want to do that. Uh, that's, that's not healthy. And it, uh, actually starts degrading our relationship with the Holy Spirit because we began to increase our relationship with that identity. You know, we're we're not like those Lutherans or we're not like those Catholics or we're not like uh those Muslims. We're we're something different and it's a little narcissistic to even begin to look at life by comparing ourselves with everybody else. There is Christ is the one that is the one whom we should be comparing ourselves with. And uh, Christ was one with the Father. So we should have, you know, they talk about having God uh, within our hearts. Well, then the only way you would know that that was the case is that we would see God manifested, the character of God manifested, the name of God manifested in what you do. And unfortunately today, most Christians are not doing what the early church did. So, you know, I, I won't go through uh, Corinthians 5 right now, but uh, I just put up some notes on Corinthians 5. And, and briefly, Paul starts out talking about individuals committing adultery and fornication, but then he shifts to what would be called national adultery. And we have links there that show you that most of the time when they mention adultery, in the in the Bible, they're talking about national adultery. Well, national adultery is when you're symbolically, metaphorically, having relations with someone other than the bride of Christ. And that would be probably all these denominations, religious denominations, which brings in... The other aspect, I, I was looking at a number of laws throughout the country in the last uh, few days because I had to write a credence letter. And I'm thinking, you know, they talk about church and then they talk about religious institutions. And 
it's very clear in the codes, or reasonably clear in the codes, that a religious organization is not the same as a church. But in most people's minds, if you say church, and then you say religious organization, you'll think, oh, well, churches are religious organizations. Well, not necessarily, and that's not what they're, they don't use the word religious organizations or the phrase religious organizations interchangeably with the term church. A church is something more than a, a religious institution. It is the church. And there's lots of religious institutions that are not churches. And, you know, I mean, you can, you can have a church and you also clean the restrooms. That doesn't make the church a janitorial service because you clean the restrooms as a part of your duties at the church. <laughs> so it, it doesn't make it a religious institution. The religious institution is something other than a church. Just because a church has some religious activity doesn't make it the same thing. And to give you an example of that, if a religion, if pure religion is taking care of the needy of society, the widows and orphans of society, those whose family has broken down, and uh, pure religion is to do that unspotted by the world, and we've talked about what the word world means, and if you don't know, you should look up our articles on religion, but how do most people take care of the widows and orphans of their society? They do it with things, you know, in the United States, they do it with things like uh, Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. And in Great Britain, I think they use national insurance and and uh, there's different social insurance uh, safety net programs in most countries. And that's how they take care of the widows and orphans and needy of their society. Those are religious institutions. I didn't want to shake anybody up. Actually, I do. I want to shake you up so that you start to look at things, but that's a religious institution if it is taking care of the needy of society. It's not pure religion, as James calls it, but it's uh, a religious institution because that's what it does. It uses force because they force the contributions of the people to take care of the widows and orphans, and so, therefore, it's not pure religion, and it is certainly not the Christian religion, because the Christian religion does not use force. John the Baptist did not use force. He said that you had to do this voluntarily in what we call charity, or what is often translated love when Christ uses the term. Uh, that we see Paul using, that they translate charity. When Christ used it, they translated love. Because it's a voluntary helping of one another. And this, of course, is what they're talking about in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Although 6 goes into other things such as the law. But I thought I'd point out at least in 5, and you can go read it at Preparing You. We have a side panel there with a lot of other links. I just noticed one of them I've, I've I have to correct. I'll go back and correct that after the show or during the break. But uh, the reality is, is they talk about fornication on an individual basis, but then he talks about another broader term of fornication, and he talks about to deliver such an one unto Satan. Well, Satan is the word for adversary. And what is the adversary 
of Christ and Christ's religion of charity. It's the religious systems of force and compelled offerings. That's the distinction. This is, this is why Christians were persecuted is they had their own private religion to take care of the needy of society and they would not join the temple religions of Rome which took care of the needy of society with their free bread because those offerings were compelled. If you, if you became a member of those temples and you did not pay in the amount that was due, they could actually come to your house and arrest you. And they actually did this in North Africa with one of the bishops. They came to his house to arrest him. But a lot of people liked him uh, because he he was the head of this charitable organization that helped out all kinds of people. And so they actually uh, brought one of the tables from the temple, set it up outside of the bishop's uh, house, and they put money on the table. They had officials from the temple there. And all the bishop had to do is push the money across the table. And he would have not been executed. But he would not do it. Because the, even though it was just a show, there it was, it was all about force. Even though it wasn't really taking money out of his pocket, he wasn't going to do it because he was going to bear witness. And because of that, he was eventually executed. And uh, that's that was the conflict between Christians and the religions of the world. Is that their religion was by charity and the religions of the world was by force. So once you understand that in historical context, I listened to John Arthur today talking about religion. He doesn't really understand that as much studying as he done. He doesn't hasn't really connected the fact that. Uh, if you're going to preach the gospel, you have to preach a system of religion based on charity. That's part of the gospel. And, you know, he talked a great deal about the end of the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice. And he talked about Judaism uh, at the time of Christ as if the Pharisees was the totality of Judaism. And their blood sacrifice of killing lambs, you know, and... And he, he referred to the, those priests as little more than butchers because they were covered with blood from the waist down because they were slaughtering lambs all day and burning them up. Well, they were, but there was another very large group of Jews, uh, probably to some degree, maybe even a larger group of Jews that were not Pharisees. Uh, they were also divisionary they had their identity politics back then so you had you had the zealots and you had the pharisees and you had the sadducees and you had the essenes and then you probably had different sects amongst these different groups uh so that there were a variety of different essenes but the essenes didn't participate in the animal sacrifice because they didn't think that that's what was called for in the torah they had a completely different interpretation. But what they did believe in was charity. And they took care of all the social welfare needs of the scene communities through charity. And that was distinct from what we saw the Pharisees doing. Because under Herod, 
they were forcing the offerings of the people. And uh, that's what Rome had begun to do. They had started it kind of 150 years before, but under Augustus it really took off. And uh, they, you, you were compelled to pay in. And they often taxed the rich more than the poor because there was a lot more money in taxing the rich. And they would also tax enemies uh, with tribute. That's what tax was, is tribute. And the slothful shall be under tribute according to Proverbs. So there were lots of people that had to pay into the system of Rome. And then Rome provided free bread for the needy of society. But it was based on a system of force. And this is why they talk about John the Baptist. Which I should put a link there on the page to John the Baptist. Because until John the Baptist, at that particular time in history, almost every government was reserve, result, uh, you know, looking to using force to provide this social safety net. And Corinth was no exception. Which is why Paul, at times, is talking to the treasurer of Corinth. Explaining to Corinth, because Corinth used to do it through charity. Rome used to do it through charity. Israel used to do it through charity. They called it free will offerings. But now everybody was moved from free will offerings to take care of the needy of society, which bound society together through faith, hope, and charity, through love of one another, through honor. And now they were binding one another through contract, social contracts, social compacts, where you signed up and you had to pay in and there was some sort of statutory amount and somebody would come your house and make sure you shared a portion of your crops whether that was you know olive oil or wheat or sheep or whatever it was or if you were a potter a portion of you know the work that you did had to go to uh, the government and that that was the system that was making the word of God the none effect and it's so much so that people would say well, you know, now my parents are aged and everything and they need help. Uh, they should go to the temple because I pay into the temple. And so people would actually do less for their parents. They would not take a portion of what they were earning and take care of their parents. They would expect the government to take care of their parents. So anyway, um, that's uh, that's what they were doing. And uh, it was not a good thing. It was actually a bad thing. And it was making the word of God to none effect. And Paul is now talking to Corinthians. And they're still doing some of those things. And he talks about the leaven of malice and wickedness in chapter 5 and verse 8. And he talks about the fact that we become covetous. You know, fornicators of this world. Using a word that means constitutional order and system of government where you're actually going to that government of force to get those benefits, which includes a certain covetousness, because you're going to be looking to the the benefactors of those worlds to provide you with benefits at the expense of your neighbor. And those governments are going to go to your neighbor's house and force them to contribute. So then you become an extortioner, and you become dependent upon their system, and that makes you an idolater and an adulterer because you're not depending on 
the bride of Christ rightly dividing the bread from house to house, but the governments who a force. And so once you understand these basic things of history that were going on, it should be easy for you to understand what Paul is talking about in these chapters to Corinth. Of course, he does. He's not advocating that you do commit fornication and adultery on an individual basis, but he's pointing out that by desiring the benefits of men who exercise authority, something Christ forbid, that you are actually becoming an adulterer, a national adulterer, and a fornicator. And we should not be. Not only should not be doing that, we should not be sitting down in companies with people who do that or choose to do that. Now, of course, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness will take some time. And that's a process. And we we know that when Christ first began his ministry, that it took a while before people were willing to eat his flesh and drink his blood. In In other words, do things according to the way. They they didn't want to give up those benefits. They feared giving up those benefits, like the parents of the blind man, who, if they said Christ cured their son, they would be put out of the synagogue. And what was a synagogue? It was ten families. They gathered together, and then they pick a minister, and then those ministers would uh, gather together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and eventually you get back up to the temple. And if you're kicked out of the system of synagogues, this network of synagogues, that, you know, as we said recently in a show, Rosh Duni was saying was the common way that all the apostles were organizing the early church in these tens. Just because that's that's the way you did it. They knew that was the way you did it. We today, we don't know that's the way you did it because the pastors haven't been teaching us what they were actually doing in the early church. So when you mention the tens, hundreds, and thousands, they say, oh, well, no, that was Old Testament. No, that's what that was the early church. I mean, it was so well known, there was no reason to repeat it over and over again. Although Christ did command that his disciples... Make the people organize themselves in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And there is no practical way of getting people to organize to take care of a daily ministration unless you organize in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because if you organize in the, you know, you, you, your church is 500 people and you got one pastor up there or maybe a few assistant pastors, that's just not the way it worked. It wasn't efficient. Oh, it's efficient if all you want to do is tickle people's ears on Sabbaths and Sundays and and tell them that they're saved because they thought a thought. They were able to save themselves with their own thinking and their own imagination. They don't actually have to do anything. They don't have to be like Christ. They don't have to come together in the name of Christ. They just say they come together in the name of Christ and it's a done deal. If you're actually coming together in the name of Christ, you're coming together in the spirit of Christ, in the character of Christ. And you're actually helping one another. If you're going to practice pure religion, you got to take care of all the social welfare needs of the needy in your church through charity. Unspotted by anybody who would be taking care of the needs of the elderly or the injured or the infirm in your church through 
a system that depended upon men who exercised authority and forced the contribution of the people. Now, I was just talking to a minister a couple of days ago who was with us for a while and kind of went away and, and he still wants to kind of come back and he's, but he's still wrestling with some things. And that's fine. I, I'll give him time. It's, I, I won't, wouldn't take that time away from him, but I also understand that this is, this is a journey between him and God. But the reality is, is that he talks about, he had a, a lot of people were following him and then he had me come there and speak. And then they, almost everybody that was following with them and being a part of his congregations there fell away because they couldn't receive this message. Well, that's, that's the same thing when Christ said, you know, cause the people who were listening to Christ, they knew that he had been rich and made himself poor and he was, he was saying to the Pharisees, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and I'm going to appoint it to another. And he's going around telling people not to covet and to love one another. In other words, use charity. John the Baptist had done the same thing. Until John the Baptist, everybody thought it was okay to take care of the welfare of society through forced offerings. They didn't, you know, a hundred or two hundred years before, but they did then. And when did that start? Well, it started way back with uh, Saul when they wanted to have a king. They wanted to have a centralized government and Saul forced an offering of the people. So, I mean, it actually started before that. Cain was doing it. Nimrod was doing it. But it's not the way of God. And it's not the way of Christ. And it's not the way of the early church. And it shouldn't be the way of the church today. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. And we're going to just... Just We'll just look at the text and we'll go through it step by step. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. So, that's that's the opening of that chapter. Now, you have to remember that these chapter numbers and everything are not in the original text. So, what that's why I went through chapter 5 a little bit because... He was setting you up for the next part of his conversation. Paul does jump around a lot in all of his explanations because it was a style where, you know, he will use the individual fornication and relate it to the national fornication. And when I say national fornication, I'm the fornication of the early church because the early church was like a government. And even still today in the, in the law dictionary, the church is to, defined as one form of government. Now, the church is a government that does not exercise authority one over the other. And to a lot of people, that's very difficult to even conceptualize a government that does not exercise authority one over the other. Because when you just say the word government, it triggers in most people's mind an authoritarian government. And we have a lot of people going into home churches now because they want to get out of the institutional church. And that's one of the things I throw John MacArthur was saying is that uh, uh, the institutional church came in with Constantine. Well, actually, with Constantine came in something that wasn't the church at all. It was something that called itself the church. But its head was not Christ. Its head was Constantine. 
That's why he was sitting in a golden throne dictating. That's why of the several thousand bishops that were ordered to come to his gathering there in Milan and and uh, and subsequent gatherings in other places, only a few hundred showed up and some of them left before the meeting was even over. The next meeting they had even half as many people showed up to that one. Yet Christianity was supposedly everywhere, but half as many people showed up. And the first time there wasn't even enough for a quorum. There wasn't enough to, you know, you'd have to have at least 20% of the bishops there to, and that wouldn't even be counted as a quorum. You'd have to have over 50% to have a quorum, I think. I don't know what the rule would be, but I mean, just generally speaking, when you're, and then if, of course, you have to take into consideration that even if you had 100% of all the bishops show up at a meeting in Rome or Milan or wherever you wanted to have this meeting, they couldn't vote and make the uh, rules for everybody else because Christ forbid them to exercise authority one over the other. <laughs> so later on when uh, uh, John MacArthur is talking about uh, theological utopias, you know, in this, he was in a conversation with uh, Ben Shapiro that, uh, and you could probably find that, where he, I think it was about 23 minutes in, he was talking about theocratic utopias. He doesn't understand what religion is. He doesn't understand how that government works. I mean, I'm sure he's read it. He's a smart guy. But he hasn't really put it together. I mean, in in the kingdom of God, you tithe to your minister according to his service. So the power of choice, the power to choose who to tithe to, when to tithe to them, and how much to tithe to them, is really in your hands, in the individual's hands. And that has a tremendous regulatory power over the government. And so, that's the only way to find a utopian government, is to have the power of the government in the hands of every individual. Not in a democracy, because that's the power is in the hands of 51% of the people. But to have it in the hands of every individual people, in other words, they hold the purse strings. Now, it doesn't mean what you see in a lot of churches today where uh, the congregation gives money to the church, but there's a board telling the pastor how he can spend the money. They haven't really let go. Everybody on that board, whatever they put in, they still got their finger on it. It's not a burnt offering. But if they, they pick a man, they look out amongst themselves and they pick a man they really trust, they give them the money and they say, or, you know, the resources, bread, sheep, whatever you want to give. I don't care what you give. But you give it to him and he decides what to do with it. If he starts making bad decisions... Stop giving to him. You only give to him according to his service. If he's not doing a good service, you don't give to him. But you have to give to him and let it go so that he makes that decision on his own. And that will strengthen him and it will strengthen his resolve. And then if you see him doing bad with it, don't give to him again. You can't go back and say, oh, well, we're going to, you know, freeze your account. No. No, you have to give to him. The, the, the real treasures in the kingdom is not supposed to be in a central treasury anyway. It's supposed to be in your pocket. Moses said that. Christ said that. And, but there's supposed to be a flow. I mean, you don't, 
you don't use your heart as a storage chamber for blood. It's a, the heart pumps the blood, but most of the blood, most of the time, is spread throughout the body. It's no different with the kingdom. The blood of the kingdom is in every man, but that brings us to the really key element of a theocratic utopia, is you have to have the spirit of God in the hearts and minds of every man. Well, I can, I can pretty much tell you it won't be in every man. It will be in some and then not in others. What does that all look like? And, and we've had this whole series on structure and what the, you know, the dry bones, can they live? And then we talk about the sinew and the muscles coming on the dry bones and then they stand upright and the Holy Spirit is breathed into them. Well, you guys are pretty much still dry bones. You're still scattered dry bones. You're still dividing yourselves with Baptists and Methodists and Sabbath keepers and all these other things and rules that you pull out. And why do we do that? Why Why does this identity politics have such a grip on us? It's because we're missing the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is enough. The Holy Spirit coming into your hearts and mind is enough. You don't need all these rituals and ceremonies and catechisms of of words and phrases that you memorize and and repeat back to make yourself feel saved, feel righteous. You know, people who, you know, need to do something to make themselves feel good are not good. People who are good, they don't need to make themselves feel good. They're fine. They don't need to make themselves feel righteous. But people who are not really righteous, they're going to be looking for symbols and rituals and, uh, you know, prayer claws and special hats and uniforms and things they put on from outside. Rules they put uh, abide by from outside that to make them seem or feel or imagine themselves to be righteous. I can tell you right now, I'm not righteous. I seek to be righteous. I hope I seek and strive to be righteous with every fiber of my being. But that's an ongoing process, which is why Christ used words like strive and persevere and seek, because those are process words. We're all in that process. But as soon as you think you got it, you're saved, you got this special date, all these things, that's going to get in the way of the process because it stops you. You stop at that process. You don't keep going. Now, that, that's going to offend some people. They're going to be saying, oh, no, 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 I know when I was saved and all this stuff. And But that's all manufactured eschatologies and, and religious rhetoric. And it's really not going to take you where God wants you to go. So, But if you want to do that, that's up to you. But let's go back to 1 Corinthians 6 where he's talking about saints. And the unjust. Don't go before the unjust if you have a matter or dispute of law. Go before the saints. Well, the saints, that word saints, you can go look it up. And, you know, there's a hagios in the New Testament. Uh, but in the Old Testament, there's another word that is like hagios in meaning. But uh, it is more specifically... You know, the, the Kodosh, which is 
those who are set apart. Uh, they are, we call them sacred or consecrated. And it means that, okay, if you, if you, somebody gives something to the temple, they talk about it being consecrated. It means it's set apart. It's like that guy did where he pushes the coins across the table. He separates it from himself. He doesn't have it anymore. He has consecrated it for the purposes of the church or the temple or whatever. And he has separated it from him. Well, the Levites were separate. They were, the Levites are mine. They are to separate themselves from the people. Jesus called the disciples that they were to called out to be separate from the world. Uh, so this is this is what saints means when he's talking about saints. He's talking about the ministry. It doesn't mean that the the elders of families and congregations aren't just as holy in the sense of righteous or pious or any of those things or in the eyes of God. It has to do with being separate. So you're supposed to take these matters before the saints, not before everybody but before the saints, instead of the unjust. Well, who are the unjust? So, you know, I mean, there's a word there that they translate as unjust or they actually translate it four times unrighteous. Well, what's not righteous? You know, I mean, they have a definition descriptive of one who violates or has violated justice. Unrighteous, sinful. What they're talking about. Well, who is the unrighteous and sinful? People who want to live at the expense of others, people who want to force the offerings of others, people who want to be extortioners and compel the uh, offerings of others and and exercise authority over their neighbor and take away their neighbor's right to choose, that would be the unjust. Well, that's the courts of the world. Don't take it before the unjust who are forcing the offerings of the people. Take it before the saints who are separated out. Because there were, when you became a minister of Christ, he put certain restrictions on you, certain things you had to do. When you get, became a minister of God as a Levite, there were certain things that you had to do. And the reality, those things were very much the same. Of course, now a lot of people will object to hearing that right now, but we'll have to, and we have, we have links on the page that will take you to articles to show you where they were the same and where they appear to be different and much of where they appear to be different is because of the misinterpretation of the Old Testament and the Torah. And that's why I'm pointing out that one of the largest religious groups at the time who considered themselves Jews and read the Torah on a regular basis didn't do the animal sacrifice that you see the Pharisees doing. They were doing charity. Their sacrifice was sacrificing to take care of the needy through charity. That sacrifice was not done away with. That sacrifice was still in the early church. The the mindless ritual of killing sheep and setting them on fire done by the Pharisees, that was done away with. Jeremiah talked about it, that that's not what God wanted. Because people kept... Going back, because of the identity politics syndrome, they keep going back to these mindless rituals instead of the spirit that those rituals were trying, you know, those ritual descriptions were trying to tell you about. 
So anyway, so you're supposed to, if you have this uh, dispute of one against another, you're supposed to take it before the saints and not the courts of the world. Now, why are the saints even running the court? Well, if the, you know, we have some quotes there from the early people like Jerome who said, you know, that the, the, the church, you know, bishops and all these things that they call ministers, uh, they occupied in the church the same position as those were occupied by Aaron and his sons and the Levites in the temple. Except it was a living temple. Now, of course, it was a living temple back in the original days, too. They weren't to build a stone temple. That was not a good thing. And it's still not a good thing. The temple God wants you to build and to sacrifice in is a living temple. And the sacrifice is meant to help fund the pure religion of a kingdom that operates by faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, and violence. Most of the people today who call themselves Christians provide their daily ministration through force, fear, and violence, extorting money from their neighbor to provide for their welfare and to provide a social safety net for their community. And they are the communion of the unjust. They are lovers of the reward of unrighteousness. So, when Paul is talking about going before the saints instead of the unjust, he's talking about people who are actually doing what the gospel of Christ said to do. We got a lot of people out there saying they're preaching the gospel of Christ, but they're actually bringing the people, you know, they have great swelling words, powerful speakers with great swelling words. They're actually delivering you into bondage because they're saying to you that it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods as long as you do it through government. It's not. (laughs) You need to turn around. And you need to stop dividing one another by imposing rules and regulations that you imagine, you know, like Sabbath. You imagine if I count these days and I take the Sabbath off, I'm keeping the Sabbath. I just heard... Uh, Ben Shapiro when he was talking to John MacArthur talking about, you know, keeping the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath has to do with being out of debt. Everybody in the United States, every United States citizen is in debt up to their ears and daily they're putting their children into even greater debt because, you know, the budget is running away and the debt is, you know, there's a debt clock somewhere. It's just ticking away. And that debt is increasing moment by moment every day by huge amounts of money. And so they're cursing their children. They have become merchandise, surety for debt. They're not Sabbath keepers. They can count to seven as much as they want. They're not Sabbath keepers. They can say, oh, well, I don't want to be a part of that system. I'm going to come out of that system and everything. But that isn't enough either because that's not the command of Christ. The command of Christ was to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start loving one another, providing charity for one another, start practicing pure religion. If you're not doing that on a kingdom level, you may be doing that on some little local congregational level, but that's just because you love those who love you. If you're not doing it on a kingdom level, (laughs) you know, in that network of tens, hundreds, and thousands, then you're not doing it. You're not seeking the kingdom. You say, well, I'm seeking the kingdom up to the point where I actually seek the kingdom. That doesn't count. That's not really where it's at. So, anyway, do ye 
not know that the saints shall judge the world. Ah, I'll leave you to look up what word world there there is. And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matter? So anyway, there's a whole, we do a whole program or a couple of programs on how we judge the world. We don't do it like the world judges us. You know, we're not going to send the world to the Colosseum, although it will go to death and destruction. But we, it will be like the Pharaoh went to death and destruction. We're not going to kill the Pharaoh. We're not going to war against the Pharaoh and flesh and blood of the Pharaoh. But if he will not see the truth, then he will be blind as Goliath was when he came down to destroy David. You know, Goliath had to be led down. Why? Because Goliath didn't see very good. He's very short-sighted. The governments of the world today are very short-sighted. <laughs> so, so anyway, but he, came, he had to be led down. And then he's... And not until David got really close did he say, you know, have you come out to get me with sticks? Because he was carrying a shepherd's staff. He was, only had one. He couldn't tell it was only one. He thought it was two. He clearly did not see very good. He was a big brute. and had a lot of armor. And if you went up toe-to-toe with him, you'd probably... But David wasn't going to get that close. He was going to use uh, one of his slings and a rock... It was probably traveling at about the speed of a forty-five bullet, or at least with the impact of a forty-five bullet, by the time it hit him. And so, anyway, the point is, is this uh, judging the world, it'll be like the Pharaoh was judged, who drowned himself by his own short-sightedness. So anyway, he goes on to say in verse 3, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. Well, that, we could do an hour on that. If then ye have judgment of things pertaining to this life, set them a judge, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so? that there is not a wise man among you. Now, when he said least esteemed in the church, he's not talking about the congregation. Everybody does that this day and age. When you say the church, they think you're talking about the congregation. The word church there in the Greek is the called out. The called out are the saints. The called out are the ones who are called out with these extra restrictions of holding all things common, uh, not being of the world, being separate, you know, etc. That they have a job. Not to exercise authority over you, or rule over you, or control you, or manipulate you, but to serve you. That's their job, as servants of the people. To provide a daily ministration and rightly divide the bread from house to house in, in a community that is operating by the perfect law of liberty, in other words, by charity. You're not doing that today. As as most of you out there who call themselves Christians, you don't take care of your needy by charity. Ninety percent or more of the needs of the of the uh, widows and orphans and needy of your society are taken care of by men who have religious institutions that operate by force. It's not pure religion. 
They're using force. They're not using charity. Like John the Baptist said, Paul said, Jesus said, John said, James said. You're, you're not using charity most of the time. You're using force. So, I mean, that's that's shocking. I just told you that most Christians aren't real Christians. But all, all, we're only talking about their particular point in time. They they can repent and start thinking differently and realize, oh my gosh, I thought that was okay. It's not okay. I need to start looking to resolve these issues in the community and society in a different way. It will change. You know, I'm not I'm not political in this sense, but I'm talking about people, so people have to do with politics. But I'm not trying to change the world. I'm trying to change or lead people to a place where their hearts can change and their minds can change. That's what repentance is, the changing of the mind. And start realizing, you know, you know, and, and we may end up talking a little bit by about Jordan Peterson before we're done today. And uh, Box uh, Day and uh, some other people uh, that uh, and we're going to talk about pedestals and how you put people up on pedestals and how you will fall if you put up pe- people up on pedestals. A precarious place to be. But uh, I wanted to get through this 1 Corinthians 6 so you could understand judgment. Now, there's several words in the Bible that are translated judge and judgment. And we're not supposed to judge. Judge not lest ye be judged. So what what word is that? And when they talk about in judgment and judge, there's actually a couple of different variations of the word in the text here in Corinthians. But we're not supposed to judge one another, but yet he's talking about us judging, the saints judging. So what's the distinction between the not judge one another and what Paul seems to be saying to judge one another? Well, it has to do with the nature of the court. And if you go read our article on jury, you realize the nature of the courts in the United States have changed. But the nature of the court in the kingdom of God has never changed. So how does the court work in the kingdom of God? Well, how did it work back in the days of the Levites? If we're supposed to have taken on the same office, the, according to Jerome, as the uh, the bishops, uh, you know, and and, uh, and ministers, and he even says presbyters, uh, which we translate into elder. If if that's the same offices as the Levites, what do we have a city of refuge that they talk about? What is the city of refuge? Well, we've got a whole article up and a link on this page to the city of refuge so that you understand what the cities of refuge were. They were appeals courts. Uh, they weren't dragging people into these appeals courts. These people would run to these appeals courts if they thought they didn't get a fair judgment. We have uh, people who draw pictures of men running across the desert and other men chasing them with a sword. And if they get to the city of refuge, you can't kill them. Uh, that's not actually the way it worked. That's a nice picture maybe, uh, but that isn't what they're talking about. You're You're carrying the metaphor too far. These are appeals courts, and if the appeals court said that you were not guilty, then you were not guilty. 
But what if you take this judgment matter? Say somebody cheated you. Uh, they cheated you in some sort of business deal or transaction or something, and you you wanted to take them to court. How do the saints enforce that? Because we can't exercise authority one over the other. How does the court work in the kingdom of God? Well, we'll have to talk about that when we come back to the keys of the kingdom. And so you've got a couple of minutes to figure out how the judicial system of the government of God works. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're talking about judging. We have a whole page. I, I could probably make several more live links on this page of uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, but we have a whole page on judge. I could make that a live link. Uh, what does it mean to judge? What, is, what does the word God mean? The word God actually means ruling judge. If God, you know, people say, well, people make money, they're God. Well, not really. They do make sometimes the love of money more important than the love of righteousness. But God means a ruling judge. And of course, the desire for money can manipulate what you and how you decide things. But uh, if you want to know who the God's many are that Paul talks about, that's the gods of the world the judges of the world. Those judges exercise authority one over the other. They rule. They make laws. They uh, they punish uh, people. In the kingdom of God, we don't have that kind of judge uh, on, in a temporal way. But we do have judges because he's just talking about the saints being judges. You know, if you have this dispute with your brother, they're being the judges. And he even... He even facetiously kind of mocks them by saying to to get the least esteemed in the called out and be the judge of the matter. But how do we do that if we can't exercise authority one over the other? Well, it's really very simple if you understand the structure of the kingdom and how the kingdom works. Because the power is in the hands of the people, remember? And hopefully the people have the Spirit of God in their hearts and they haven't fallen prey to things like identity politics where they say, wow, we're not like them. You know, we're Amish. We're not like them. We're, you know, this group or that group or, you know, and Paul has a whole sermon on that. No more Jew, no more Greek. You know, we're not supposed to be dividing ourselves with these labels, but we do it all the time. And and we will have the temptation to do it. And that's part of that striving is to overcome that temptation. So, are we going to get to the explanation of how we judge without judging? How do we do that? Now, he goes on to say in verse 7, Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourself to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud and that your brethren. So he's saying that, you know, we should not be rushing to judgment even amongst the brethren, even if we're going to take it to the saints. 
instead of to the unjust. So he's he's kind of creating a series of of obstacles without creating rules. He's just suggesting that, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing it that way? You know, I had a guy owed me money. He owed me $1,600. I had done a bunch of work for him and he was putting off pay. And he'd done this with a lot of other people. And I knew he had done it with a lot of other people when he worked for me, when he asked me to work for him. And I had done work for him and he paid me, but he always would pay me less you know, oh, I, this is all I can give you right now. I'll give you the rest in a couple of weeks. Can you go do this? And so he kind of strings you along until you, he, you know, that he ends up owing you a couple thousand dollars. <laughs> and then he doesn't pay you anymore. And then he hires somebody else. <laughs> he never disputes that he owes you the money. He just doesn't get around to paying it. But anyway, I knew the guy. He's passed away now. And I, I caught, I ran into him once and I said, hey, you know, I knew, I, I was shocked when I said this, cause I didn't, I didn't plan it out. You know, I says, are you gonna pay me that money you owe me? And he says, oh yeah, I was gonna do that and everything, but I want you to come back and do, do some more work and do some other stuff. And I, I said, well, you gotta get caught up. If you get caught up, then I'll consider coming back. Because to me, it's about teaching him responsibility. You know, I don't need to come back. I was busy enough all the time. But I would come back because I'm witnessing to him when I work there. I'm not just, you know, building something for him. I was witnessing to him. But anyway, I could see he was going to put it off again. This is months and months and months had passed. And I said, I'm not going to send you any more bills, any more statements of what you owe. I said, uh, I'll give you 30 days to pay. And if you don't pay in 30 days, I'll turn it over to my collection agency. And he kind of looked at me funny then. And I thought, like, I was kind of looking at me funny, too, because I I didn't have a collection agency. (laughs) And then I heard myself saying, at the end of 30 days, if you don't pay me, you're not going to owe me. You're going to owe Christ because I'm going to give your debt to Christ. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ever bother you again about it. And I thought, like, I'm just giving this guy an easy out. <laughs> a part of me is saying that, arguing the case, cause I could use the money. But, uh, I, I was led to say, I'm giving the debt to Christ. And I realized that now I have said it, I have to do it. Well, 30 days later, long story short, I've told this story before, and it's in our recording somewhere. Um, uh, a barn that he had was completely, absolutely destroyed by a windstorm. Another barn, just a short distance away, was completely unhurt. All the wood from his barn ended up in almost like a beaver pile. Even though it was tore apart, it was piled up like a couple hundred feet away from his barn. And we had a windfall because we helped out a number of people. All of a sudden... A bizarre set of circumstances. Suddenly, I ended up making ten times what that guy owed me. Almost exactly ten times what that guy owed me. And it all happened 30 days later. <laughs> so, so I thought like, whoa, you know, God works in mysterious ways. But that's a little bit how the judgment of God works. If you let it happen. So if you want to become a judge in the kingdom of God, you have to understand how that works. So let's look mechanically how this works. Because he goes on and explains. You know, he says, Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren, 
And so then he goes, and they make it a new paragraph. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not. He goes on now. So they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And that's a particular word, inherit there. Not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So he said it twice. Not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. But is that you? Because you're not doing what this early church was doing. You're not taking care of all the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity. You just said you repented, but you're still thinking that it's okay to take from your neighbor through men who exercise authority one over the other and by eating of the free bread of Rome. And the Christians were not to do that. So what is so what is this word inherit? You know, how how is that word defined? And you know, I go into it a little bit over there in the side panel and uh, and show you some of the, the things, but uh uh the right to inherit means to receive the portion assigned to one or to become partakers of or to obtain. So the social welfare for Christians, you have to remember all the Jews who received the baptism of Christ were cast out of the social welfare system of the Pharisees. And the Romans who were coming in and the Corinthians who were coming in we're also being separated out from those systems. Now, the Corinthians didn't have the same rule there in Corinth, at least at that, this particular time, it doesn't appear to be there, that we see the Pharisees imposing upon the Jews. So they could keep collecting their social welfare from the treasurer of Corinth and be going to church and trying to get help there too. But, of course, if they were sitting down in the tens, hundreds of thousands, and according to Rush Dooney, that's how the early church was organized. And according to a lot of other people, the, the, our, we have a book out, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Thy Kingdom Comes, that talks about how this was one of the most common forms of government throughout the world for hundreds of years before and hundreds of years afterwards, especially for free governments. But they were sitting down in these tens, hundreds, and thousands and taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. So this was the process that they are doing in the Christian community in Corinth and learning to do in these communities. And so if you brought a dispute before the elders and there sat one of the saints as kind of judge moderator of the hearing, just like we see with Boaz and Ruth. And they, the people come to a conclusion that you owe this guy a cow. You, you cheated him. What you did wasn't fair and you need to pay him back. And you say, heck with you guys. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to listen to your judgment. What power do we have to force you? We can't go to your house and round up your cow, you know, and 
you know, like the uh, Forest Service did with the Bundys, and said, just take all your cows away. We can't do that. Uh, we don't have that. We're not that kind of government. But we also know that if you are defrauding your neighbor, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. You don't get no welfare from us. And this is all done openly in public before witnesses. So the Levites, the ministers of the church, know this guy, you know, we might help out your kids, but we're not helping you out because you're a defrauder. You're defrauding your neighbor. You know, if you're a drunkard, you know, and not taking care of your children, we, we might come and take care of your children, but we're not taking care of you. Because you're not trying, you know, we might help you get on AA, but we're not gonna, we're not going to weaken you by sending you a check when you're too lazy to do something about your alcoholism or your drug addiction. And if you're covetous of your neighbor's goods and you're going to the men who exercise authority and you want benefits there and you want benefits from us, we may not give them, at least in the same amount. Now, I'm not telling everybody you have to leave the system. I'm saying this is where we're going. This is the direction we're supposed to be taking. And if you're repenting and thinking in another way, you'll see how important this is. But this is how we enforce the judgment. Is we put the facts out where everybody can see them and then everybody needs to operate according to those facts. In a way that strengthens the poor. And this is what, this is what Corinthians is talking about. Now, Paul goes on in verse 12, all things are lawful unto me. Now, Paul was Romeos. He was what the, the Romans would call sui juris. He was in possession of his rights. We knew his father had died. You can't be sui juris in possession of your rights when your father still lives. We knew his father died. And his mother married another guy who was his stepfather. And that guy was a Roman officer, the Putins. And, uh, and, uh, that gave him you know, uh, half brother and, uh, cousins, you know, Linus and, and, uh, eventually they married and, uh, so you had Claudia. These are all relatives of Paul through marriage and through his, his step relatives. And, uh, this, he was wealthy and he was Romaeus. He was in possession of his rights and he was sui juris because his father had died. And so he, being Romeos is that he wasn't subject to the legal system. You could only be tried at law. You guys don't have that right, generally speaking, which is another whole long story, because the nature of your courts have changed. But if you got rid of those courts, what would you have? If you're not seeking the kingdom, you have no other alternative. And you have no inheritance of the kingdom of God if you're participating in and seeking to participate and not seeking to turn around and go the other way, because that's what repenting, turning around, is to think this other way and start going this other way and try to get away from that covetousness and being drunk on the aid of men who exercise authority and and be going around constantly trying to extort more money or benefits out of your neighbor through government. You're supposed to be trying to get away from that and go the other way and so that you can become heirs in the kingdom of God. So anyway, he says, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, 
but I will not be brought under the power of any. The word power there is virtually the same word power. It's slightly different because it's used in a different place in the sentence. But it's the same word power that we see in Romans 13. Exousia. And, and it means the power of choice. I will not go under the right of others to choose for me. Well, in the kingdom of God is about giving you back the responsibilities. You have to decide who you're going to give to and who you're not going to give to. Who you're going to sit down with and who you're not going to sit down with. And the reality is, is if you're only going to sit down with saints and perfect people, you're going to be very lonely. Because there's there's not very many perfect people around. And the reality is, is that what you're supposed to, we talked about this in a recent show, that you're to be the candle on the lamp stand. You're to be shining out that Holy Spirit. And if you're having a hard time understanding what we're talking about, and you go to the page and you read all the links that we have there and find out what the weightier matters are and what, you know, I have a link there on what stoning was. It wasn't hitting women in the head with rocks. That's just not what it was. And the sacrifice, you know, on the altars was not about burning up sheep. And the Sabbath, it's not about, you know, counting days. Uh, it's about being out of debt. And all these people, all these Jews, you know, I mean, there's Ben Shapiro. He's an Orthodox Jew of some sort, Pharisaical kind of, you know, I don't, I don't really know what it, but he, you know, I know he brings his own food and you invite him over to dinner because he only eats kosher and he, and he has all the, you know, he has a lot of these rituals and all that stuff. And that's fine, as I've told other people who want to do those things for personal discipline. But you're not keeping the Sabbath if you're depending upon men who exercise authority one over the other for your social safety net. Because all the men who do that are borrowing against the future and putting you and your children in debt. And, you know, I, I guess Ben's had a couple of kids. I know his wife was pregnant there. Uh Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he has several kids. I'm sure they're all surety for debt. And that debt is skyrocketing as we speak. <laughs> but this is because he's ignorant of certain things. He's a real smart guy, but he's ignorant of certain things. Same thing, you know, I see with people that I've mentioned before, like uh, uh, Jordan Peterson. These guys don't walk on water. They're kind of stirring things up. I heard somebody, oh, uh, that box day was talking about thinking Trump is the best president we've had at least in the last hundred years, I don't know. I don't know. Personally, I think Calvin Coolidge was pretty good. Uh, so Calvin Coolidge might be better than Trump. Uh, but uh, they're not presidents I have. They're not my president. I have a king, and that's Jesus, and he is Lord of Lords. But uh, I'm fine with other people having them, and I, I you know, I think it, I, I pray for Trump regularly that that you know that he is. Is given wisdom, uh, but I I pray for other leaders of other countries as well. Uh, but the reality is is that these guys don't walk on water. They they are faulty people. But one of the things about Trump that uh, Box Day seemed to like is that he's stirring things up, and I I agree. Great, he's stirring things up. 
He's making people think. Of course, he's making a lot of people mad. And Jordan Peterson's making people think about a lot of things. I mean, he says a lot of things I don't agree with. And I will tell him when I'm sitting with him all the things I don't agree with. And I may start doing some videos where I talk about some of these things that people say, but I'll put the, I'll quote them exactly. I may even put their videos on the video. And then I will criticize it. And if they want to sit down with me and, or come on the radio show and, and, and hear it out what I have said, the criticism I said, great. I'm open for that. But the idea of sitting down like, uh, Box Day just made a whole book, uh, Jordanetics, I think it's called or something. And he's just dissing Jordan left and right. You know, I, I heard somebody reading the book. And I didn't hear the whole book. And it wasn't uh, Vox Day's voice. Because uh, when I listen to Vox Day himself, he's a pretty reasonable guy. And he's right about a lot of things. There's some things he's not right about. And, you know, like, I mean, I could get I could get put in Facebook jail or whatever they do. You know, Google <laughs> Google could unfund me or whether they defund me or deplatform me or whatever. Uh, if I said anything good about Vox Day, because he's not well liked by Google and them. But, uh, just because somebody has some good ideas, and says some good things, and I quote them, doesn't mean I want you to put that person up on a pedestal and follow them around. A lot of people have, have, uh, become disillusioned with Jordan Peterson because of the, the things that Vox Day has pointed out. But the reality is, is that uh, uh, the reason they're so easily disillusioned is they had already put Jordan Peterson up on a pedestal. And I warn people against that. You don't put people, you don't put me, you don't put uh, doctors, you don't put lawyers, you don't put politicians, you don't put presidents or prime ministers up on pedestals. Don't put them, there's nobody should be on a pedestal but God himself. And he doesn't need a pedestal. <laughs> so you don't need to do that even. Because most people aren't putting God up on a pedestal. They're putting their idea of God up on a pedestal. Because they're all a bunch of God creators. They create God in their image. <laughs> and then, then they worship the image they've created. Which is idolatry. Now they... You know, I get people who say, oh, you don't want to make any statues and your kids you can't have any dolls and everything because that's all idolatry. But the same person has created an image of God in their own mind and they worship that image. You know, and that's not it either. I mean, there is no trick to this. Either God is in your heart or God is not in your heart. This is not a mental journey. Your mind may come along with you, but you don't get there by following your mind, which is something, you know, I heard Jordan Peterson in that uh, John MacArthur interview was talking about, uh, I forget the atheist he's always talking with. I, I have trouble remembering that guy's name. Uh, but, I mean, after all, he is an atheist. <laughs> so, <laughs> but just teasing. Uh, the reality is, is that... Uh, uh, you can't get there by eating of the tree of knowledge. God is reasonable, but you don't find God by reasoning your way to God because what you will end up doing is creating the identity of God, a identity of God in your mind, and then you will worship that identity because that's all vanity. 
God is who he is. God is, God is, uh, is, I am that I am. He is the reality. He is the truth. And, you know, I'll admit, Jordan Peterson says some odd things. He has it written on his book. Uh, I don't know if I can remember the exact quote, but uh, Vox Day, who is actually, his name is Theodore Robert Beale. And he goes by Vox Day, which I think is a paraphrase off of, I'm guessing, Vox Day, which is the voice of God. But he doesn't actually say he's the voice of God. He actually spells it D-A-Y. And uh, maybe he means the voice of the day. You know, and you know, it's like Vox uh, Populi and Vox Day, voice of the people, and voice of God, and then the voice of the day. <laughs> but he's a, he's a really smart guy. Suppose he's. I heard him mention several times that he's a member of Mensa. Suppose he has a real high IQ and all that stuff. And you know, so does Moriarty have a high IQ. <laughs> so, and he was not a good guy. So just having a high IQ is not enough. He he seems a little boastful in the idea. And other people talk about how he just destroyed Peterson and all this stuff. But I and and other people have mentioned this too. I hear a lot of ad hominems and assumptions and projecting you know, motives and, and all these stuff. And I absolutely agree. Peterson has got lots of flaws. And like I say, if I sit down and talk with him, I don't know if I'd do it all on air. I would be willing to if he wanted to. I was amazed that, uh, I think Milo is the guy who wrote the uh, forward to Box Day's Jordanetics. But I found the interview with Jordan Peterson and Milo, uh, where Peterson was interviewing Milo, to be absolutely fascinating. I thought Jordan Peterson is a clinical psychologist, and he's a remarkable one at that. But again, I don't believe that being a psychologist is your salvation. <laughs> you, it, the salvation comes from a willingness to see the truth about yourself and a good psychologist, if there is such a thing, like a good lawyer, would be trying to lead you to that. And when I've seen Peterson operating, little I have, I mean, he's been around a long time, I've only seen a little bit of him. Uh, he does a pretty good job in that setting. You know, I want to do a whole series on his, uh, what he believes the Bible says. He's, he's really all over the place, but then so is John MacArthur all over the place. And John MacArthur, again, is a smart guy. But it doesn't mean that I think that they're always right or they're always correct and that they don't have personality flaws and character flaws. But anyway, we'll tell, talk more when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, one of the things Box was pointing out the, about Peterson is that uh, his statement, I still can't remember exactly what it was, but it's on the back of his book about uh, uh, things that are false, uh, something. I, I remember ideas. I don't always remember the specific words, but uh, uh, that they're false because of their outcome. But no, that, that is really a poor statement, and Box is right to call him out on that. Uh, but again, the idea of just sitting around dissing, you know, something is false because it's false. It's wrong because it's wrong. It's not true because it's not true. And what God is, by definition, is truth. 
it is what is. That's that's why they say he I am that I am. I am what I am. And so uh if it's if it's not true it will have a detrimental outcome. It will not bear fruit. And of course that's that's the thing is that you can look approach things from a lot of different ways. When I listen to somebody like Jordan Peterson, I'm trying to hear the man. I could criticize a lot of things the way he says. I'm sure people can criticize a lot of things the way I say them. And say, oh, I shouldn't say that, and I shouldn't say it this way, and I shouldn't. But you're not trying to get to know me. You're not trying to, you know, if you're just going to go around. That's what ad hominems are, is that you attack the individual rather than the topic and uh, 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 the facts of the topic and the meaning of the topic. And basically, what Jordan Peterson is often saying, at least what I hear him saying, I'm sure he says a lot of things I don't hear him say, is that you got to take back the responsibility for yourself, for your family, and then for your friends and your neighbors. And that's a good idea. I've heard Jordan, uh, not only Jordan Peterson say that, but I've heard... You know, Ben Shapiro say it, you know, like uh, the libertarians need to start thinking about getting into groups that actually taking care of one another instead of depending upon the government to do it. I absolutely agree. I'm just taking it a lot farther because I'm, I'm, I know the road to the kingdom's a lot farther away than they want to think. <laughs> and, you know, I thought about uh, started an article, you know, about what makes America great again. You know, Trump wants to make America great again. How do you do that? You know, the way in which you do that has to be the way of Christ. It doesn't mean you have to say Christ and Jesus and, you know, wear certain clothes and certain hats and join some denomination, which is just identity politics again. It means that you have to actually put on the character of Jesus who came to serve, to sacrifice for others. If you go to church for what you get out of church, you go to church for the wrong reason. You should go to church for what you could give to it. Christ came to give. He came that you might be saved. And you should be going to church that others might be saved. But you cannot save yourself with a thought or a phrase or ideology or a catechism. You you have no inheritance in the kingdom if you're if you're out there extorting from your neighbor and coveting your neighbor's goods and not sacrificing for one another. And so that's that's the big difference. That's the fundamental uh, of what you need to be looking at. And Jordan Peterson brought these things up more so than sometimes people like John MacArthur or Billy Graham and. The what often these guys are condemned by what they don't bring up, and they don't bring it up because they're ignorant, they're blind guides, they're not seeing what they need to see, and and Box doesn't see things, you know. I mean, supposedly, I mean, if you look him up, he's a white supremacist. I don't know if he is. I never heard him say anything along those lines, you know. When the but I've only listened to a few recordings, but he may be. White supremacist, and and that's one of the things that he called uh, Peterson out is when Peterson was asked about Milo uh, being a racist. Uh, Peterson kind of said, "Well, he might be a racist," which is 
And Milo says, why did he say that? He knows I'm not a racist. I don't know that he's not a racist. You know, uh, he, he might be a racist. He says he likes black men better than white men. <laughs> That's racism. And I, I did hear him say that, you know, cause Milo's, uh, I'm not, he, he believes he's gay. He thinks he's gay. You know, being gay is a social construct. And, and people who think they're gay are often, they're locked into thinking that they're gay. That's what the Bible says. They will be compelled to think that they're gay. But they're, you're not, you're not born gay. I mean, even, uh, I just, just last week I read, uh, uh, John Hopkins, uh, is it, uh, I'm not sure where the study came out of, uh, uh, but I believe it was, you know, major medical institutions said that there is no evidence that people are born gay. It is a social construct. And of course, if you're going to be going out once some, you know, a little boy thinks that he's a girl, then you start giving him hormone blockers. You're going to, it's not just a social construct. It's a medical construct. You're making it. And then of course, there's some evidence, and I don't know if it's really true, but you hear about it, that there's certain chemicals in plastic bottles and there's a lot of, Estrogen in the water supply and all this stuff might be chemically making people more effeminate. And so that, again, that's, but the reality is, is that we are to be fruitful and multiply and gay people aren't doing that. Uh, so they're missing the, the natural call. And whether you believe in God or not, that's how the species got here, is that people were fruitful and multiplied. They got here with heterosexual relationships. Uh, that's just the reality. And if you're going against that, you're going against nature. But that's what we see a lot of times, is that people are are, are going against nature and nature's God. Uh, you know, everything from vaccinations to, you know, you're trying to thwart the consequences of nature. Instead of using nature to become immune, in which some people will die, you're trying to thwart that. And, you know, I'll put a cast on somebody's arm if it breaks. Uh, I've had broken bones. I didn't get casted. I just took care of them myself. But, uh, and they healed remarkably fast. Uh, and I believe that if the more we get closer to actually the way what early Christianity was called the way is taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, and violence. We'll see more miraculous healings because we will be tapping into the power that has created so much life on this earth that more life will be created in us. Uh, Huang Bo, who was a Chinese I guess kind of philosopher said the foolish reject that what they see and not what they think. The wise reject what they think and not what they see. Now, of course, this is one of those platitudes from uh, the inscrutable Chinese. He, he's not that old of a philosopher. I mean, he's, you have to go several hundred years back. I don't put him up on a pedestal. I just thought that was kind of interesting. I could probably take that and start adding to it or rearrange it a little bit because, you know, what actually we would say rather than what 
you you think, but what you think you see. <laughs> because people look out there and they see an image of reality that may not be complete. And they get certain impressions of it. And that's that's how you end up with the blind leading the blind. Because they're eating of the tree of knowledge and you just can't see the whole tree at once for most people. People like Vox who... Uh, you know, supposedly higher IQ and and a member of Mensa, they can maybe see more. But we don't just see with our mental capacity. We also see with a spiritual capacity. And this is why, you know, people talk, John MacArthur was talking about the Bible. and We have to have this rock of the Bible that shows us exactly, you know, this foundation because we, you know, well, the Bible's a great tool, but it depends on who's reading it. Who's interpreting it? Because people have used the Bible to justify all kinds of evil and wicked things. You can say, wow, they misinterpreted it, but I'm not misinterpreting it. But the reality is that John MacArthur is misinterpreting it. Uh, I'm sure he's probably collecting Social Security now. He's, he's got to be old enough. Uh, at least he appeared to be old enough. And he probably thinks that's okay. Even though Social Security is bankrupt, there is no money in Social Security. So if you're collecting any money out of that, you're taking, you're asking men who exercise authority to force your neighbor to contribute, and you're putting your children, your grandchildren, and your neighbor's grandchildren more and more into debt. Now I'm not saying stop taking the check if you can, and then go out on the street and die pushing a shopping cart around. I'm just saying realize where you're at. And what you, your condition is. When the Israelites realized they were in bondage in Egypt, they cried out to God. And God eventually sent Moses to show them the way out. And there is a way out. And Moses knew it. And Christ knows it. The problem is your modern preachers like John MacArthur doesn't know it. And Jeff in, in Carolina kind of knew it. But all of the people that he was talking with, they didn't want to hear it. And so they all walked away. But that is what happened to Christ. Because Christ said, "You unless you unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, which is to do it this way, through charity, instead of through force, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. If you are willing to walk that walk and gather together, sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and start contributing to one another to strengthen the poor, not to make them more weak, to get them also to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, as Christ commanded, in love for one another. Something metaphysically powerful begins to happen. That, that spirit begins to flow through you. Because you you are finally having the same spirit as Christ. You know, Vox Day was on InfoWars. And, you know, I love Alex Jones. Of course, I love Bill Clinton, too. <laughs> I think he's a cad, Bill Clinton. Anyway, I don't. I guess Alex has had some marital problems, but I don't know the details, and I'm not going to sit around dissing them. Again, you know, if I go on Alex's show or before the show and we talk, and we and he tells me what the problems are, you know, I'll talk to him if he wants to sit down with his wife or his ex-wife or wherever he's at. I'll talk to them about that, but I'm not going to use. You know, that's one of the things that. Now, this may not be Vox Day's motive. But writing a book about Jordan Peterson is a good economic move. 
And if it disses them, you know there's a lot of people that hate Jordan Peterson. So they're going to all buy your book. (laughs) And other people who already like you, they may buy your book. They may not like it. You may lose some followers. But then uh, the one guy that was interviewing him was saying, because I listened to a number of interviews, uh, and uh, one guy was saying that he had paid $200 to shake the hand of Jordan Peterson. I guess some people paid more than that, $300 or more, you know, to get a picture taken with Jordan Peterson. Get, You know, if you're doing that, unless you've got lots and lots of money and $200 means nothing and you actually just wanted to support him and you but if you did it to stand with the guy and shake his hand you've done put somebody up on a pedestal and that's not going to end well <laughs> and of course when Vox Day came out with his book and the guy read it and started thinking about it it didn't end well because he feels taken he feels robbed and then he starts dissing Jordan if I criticize somebody, I do it because I don't want you to make the same mistake and I would love him to see where he has made the mistake. But I don't know all these people well enough. I'm not sitting down with them. I'm just, I am going to criticize some of these people. Like I said, I may do videos and audios and I'm doing it right here. Uh, but I'm going to try to stick to what they actually said. I didn't see Box Day sticking to that. I saw him doing some of that. And he was right about some of the things. But like I said, I saw a lot of ad hominems and assumptions and projections of intent that aren't really there. And and his idea that, you know, uh, that if he actually debated Jordan Peterson, he would just tear him to shreds and stuff like that. Maybe. Maybe not. Uh, whether they ever, but I'm not challenging anybody to do it. But like I said, I found Jordan Peterson and Milo's interview to be amazing, just amazing. And I would, you know, love to sit down with people and we talk about, you know, look at what he just did there and, and look how Milo was positive, had a positive response. You know, I don't know how he felt afterwards. I mean, it was quite brave on the part of Milo to even do this. Uh, But, you know, he's always been rather bold. And, uh, you know, an interview with Jordan Peterson is always going to push somebody up in some rate. (laughs) So it's it's good if you're trying to build your constituency. So I don't know what his motives are. I mean, I could guess, but that would be a guess. And it's not important. What's important is the individual. And that's why I look at people. I'm fascinated at watching people from Vox to Trump to Peterson to Clinton. Um, you know, because I care about these people. I want them to see the truth about themselves so they can see the truth about the world. I don't think you can see the truth about the world so that you can see the truth about yourself. I think it's the other way around. You know, Anomaly. I've I've watched Anomaly, the guy who calls himself Anomaly. Uh, and uh, he's a rap singer, but he's been doing a lot of political commentaries. And I've watched him progress over the years now. Uh, how he's, his, his views are changing, and I see how they're changing, and I see growth. And actually, I've seen the same thing with Peterson from his stories, and, and now I've watched him. But... I also am very concerned about him because I, it's going to take a terrible toll on his health. 
It is not an accident that he has these autoimmune diseases, uh, you know, this autoimmune problem, and why he has to have this special diet, and his daughter has to, I mean, it's in their family, and they have this depression. But the only cure is not a meat diet. It's the diet of the kingdom. And that's why, you know, we always say that we serve meat here. <laughs> because we get to the meat of the matter. And I don't think Jordan has gotten to the meat of the matter yet. You know, I've seen him struggling and striving. And not always with the purest intent. I mean, wow. I would, I, I don't think I could ever charge people $200 to shake my hand. <laughs> I, I just, wow, I don't know if I could do that. I mean, be wanting to pay $200. I don't want the money. I want to give the money to somebody else to do with. You know, it's like a, kind of like a divining where your well is. I can't charge people for that. You know, using my skill to find water. I, I said, I can't, I was asked to do this by well drillers and, uh, because of my success rate, and uh, I said, "Yeah, but I can't charge money. I can't. I, I just, and that may be a weakness on my part, but that's the reality. But anyway, back to the subject at, at hand, and I've got a lot more to do, and we'll have to do it in the show maybe this afternoon. But in Matthew fifteen fourteen, it says, "Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind." And if blind, the blind lead the blind, both shall fall in a ditch. Now, I care about them, but I'm not going to go and try to, you know, I point out what I see is good, but I'm I'm not going to beat them up unless they're there to defend themselves, because then I can maybe help them with that. That's That's why I criticize. And occasionally I'll criticize public figures so that you can see your part in that same dialectic but in verse 15 he says then answered peter and said unto him declare unto us this parable and jesus said are ye also yet without understanding do not ye yet understand that whatsoever enters into the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out through the drought well that's true but it's not always true because some things stick which goes back to that autoimmune. What's or, or you have thin wall intestines? Why do you have thin wall intestines? Why, why is what portion of your mind is in your gut? Because we we've talked about that. How uh, brain cells are actually in the lining of your gut, and w- what messages are they picking up from the bacteria in your gut? Because this is where uh, that problem. And why are you structured in that way? Because Everything that exists in the physical world has a pre-existence in the spiritual world. This is the same with the structure of mankind, the structure of the church, the structures of government. And when you leave out certain parts, when you when you strangle certain parts of that structure, when you disconnect certain parts of that structure, you get disease. And so... There's messages in these physical problems. And if you're willing to see them, we can sit down and talk about it. But if you're not willing to see them, then there's not much point in talking about it. And that's what it says. Leave them alone. So I'm not going to spend all the time on the negative aspects of a particular public figure 
and beat them up all the time about it. Or, or try to sell books because I beat them up all about it. That's just not my way. It may be Fox Day's way. And I don't want to pick on him solely for that. But that's what some people have been suggesting. And there may be some evidence to that. He can say to the contrary and probably already has. Because I'm not the first one to point this out. Uh, but it goes on to say, uh, Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in. So what is entering into you? And how does it get in there and how does it stick? Well, again, trauma is the key to that. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man. So that's one of the reasons why I don't want to just... People hear me advocate some of the things that Peterson says and they think they need to bal- I should be balancing that out with criticisms. Well, there are some criticisms, but again... I'm not going to dwell on that all the time, but I'm, that's what I'm doing in this show, pointing out that the fact that Ben Shapiro's missing a lot of stuff. Very smart guy, knows a lot of stuff, says some very good kingdom tracks, but it doesn't mean he's there. And, uh, and it doesn't mean that I advocate everything he advocates. And I'm sure John MacArthur says some things, but I just pointed out where John MacArthur is wrong. And so it's there, but I don't equate, and you, if you listen closely, when I talk about the meaning of religion, I don't have to beat John MacArthur over the head with the fact that he doesn't seem to really understand the definition of religion or a religious institution. I, I talk about what he says, and then I talk about what the real meaning is. You can figure out that he doesn't seem to have that meaning. And so... In this conversation, we've we've had a little bit of that discussion openly, and so I've made the equate, but I'm not going to be doing that all the time. I'm just going to be preaching the kingdom. I'm not going to be tearing down other people, because I, I don't want to tear down other people. I want other people to rise up and grow and become what God intended them to be. And I'm saying all this and, and sharing all this with you for free, that you might be saved. When I say you, I mean Bill Clinton, Vox Day, Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, and that atheist guy. I can never remember the name. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, for out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adultery, fornication, which going back to what Paul was talking about, theft, false witness, blasphemy. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not the man. Which goes back to the statutes of the Pharisees and Moses. Oh, they're eating with unwashed hands. Oh, they're condemned. Oh, they're not taking the Sabbath out. They're collecting grain on the Sabbath. Oh, they're condemned. No, you're missing the whole point. You're worshiping the metaphor, not the God of creation. And you need to repent and think differently. So anyway, we're almost out of time here. But uh, if we go back to the end of Corinthians 6, First uh, Corinthians 6, it says flee fornication. He's not just talking about individual fornication, but that fornication of eating at the table of men who exercise authority and making covenants with them so that you can eat at those tables. But... If you don't make the covenants and you don't eat them, you become a survivalist. That isn't a guarantee of salvation. Every sin that a man doeth 
is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. And then you can read verses 19 and 20 on your own. (laughs) But if we are going to go the way of Christ, we need to go the way of the Holy Spirit. We need to be the living stones of that temple. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.